Hello everyone, this is Andrew from Iroquois History and Legends. Just to give you an idea of what's going on today, we have a very special guest, Steve Guerra, from the History of the Papacy podcast, and he also hosts the Beyond the Big Screen podcast. Today, Steve, Caleb, and myself will be discussing the 1990 film, The Last of the Mohicans, for what our opinion on the film is and for historical accuracy. We hope you enjoy. Last of the Mohicans was made and released in 1992, directed by Michael Mann. It is based on the book by James Fenimore Cooper. Today we're going to really talk about the movie, the history, and the book. So we're going to we have our work cut out for us today. And it had a runtime of 112 minutes. What I thought was really cool about the movie, rather, is that they speak English, French, Mohawk, Huron. They really hit everything. And when we were talking about it beforehand, we I really understood the movie a lot more after listening to your podcast, the Iroquois History and Legends. What did you guys think of the movie after revisiting it, after probably have watched it years ago and now watching it now? Well, the first thing that stands out to me is, like you said, just how professionally everything was done. Hollywood has this uh, a problem that they tend to run into with a lot of their movies is they don't go and really get an expert opinion on what things were like then. They just be like, here's how I picture it. They give five minutes explanation to their costume designer and they make the costumes and film the movie. But the detail in the costumes and like you said, the uh, the accents and the languages really all match incredibly well to the time period. All of the costumes are handmade in the style that would have been in the mid-1700s. Everything from the moccasins, and not just the clothing, but the boats, the bows and arrows, the weapons were forged by both people that are native artisans and people that study mid-18th century warfare. Can you give us a quick context of what the movie, the, it says that it starts in 1757. What was going on in 1757 in what would become New York State, which was the colony of New York at the time? Oh boy. It is incredibly complicated. Andrew and I actually just finished covering a seven-part series, so if you're interested in learning more about this time period in upstate New York, you can go to our website. But basically what's going on is you're having this whole huge mess of all the different Native American nations that are all the way from Canada down into Pennsylvania, and many of them are warring with each other, and many of the other ones are allying with the French or the English. You're just getting this huge mess of cultures all put into this little bowl, which sparks and becomes the French and Indian War. French, for the past several years, have been just dominating the English battle after battle. That's going to continue through this movie. We're going to see uh, Fort William Henry is kind of the focus for, for this movie. And Fort William Henry is on Lake George. If you've ever been to upstate New York in the Adirondack region, we're talking a couple hours north of Albany. And this lake is kind of like a linchpin because the lake leads into Lake Champlain, which is a really long lake which can get you all the way up into Canada. So French forces are coming down from the north. The British are trying to hold them off at this fort. But the fort is kind of not in either one of their territories. This fort is in Mohawk territory, and it's on the border of Mohican territory. And on either side of this lake is the Adirondacks Mountains, and then you have the Green Mountains of, and, Vermont. of Vermont. 
So there's really no way to get into Canada or colonial America except through this choke point where this movie takes place. Could you uh, get there directly to, say, Montreal by water, or was there some portaging along the way? You did need to do some portages. So Lake George has this tiny little river called Le Chute. That is French for the Chute, if uh, you're, you're not aware. And it's this short little river... And it, it kind of drops at like a 45-degree angle. It's not a waterfall, but there's no way to traverse it by boat or canoe. So you have to get out at this portage and go down to a place you may have heard of called Ticonderoga. And that's the portage. And then from Lake Champlain, you can take that all the way up into Canada. And there's a river called, now we call it the Richelieu, but at the time it was called Rivière des Iroquois. That's River of the Iroquois. <laughs> Funny how it works out like that. And then to get into Canada, Montreal is not too far from there to get to um, the St. Lawrence River. Maybe we can set the table a little bit of the people because there's the French and the Indians. That's I follow that. That's the French and Indian War part of it. But there's the British. Who are the Native Americans? They, um, they had Mohawks and Hurons, and you've said the Mohicans. What are, what's a little bit of backstory on all of those different peoples? Yeah, and I want to set the table with this right now. People, especially people that don't know what they're talking about, lump Native Americans all into one group. That would be like lumping the French, English, and Dutch into one group. Yeah, they're Europeans, but Native Americans are very different. And they have different alliances, and they have different goals in this war. So we focus in our podcast on the six nations of the Haudenosaunee, which are the Iroquois, and this is Mohawk territory. But you also have the Mohicans. And the Mohicans were an Algonquian people group, closely related to the Delaware. The movie kind of starts right off with a lie, being called the last of the Mohicans. This is a historical event with fictional characters thrown into it. And it's about this group of people who are the last two of the Mohicans, Uncas and Chingachukuk, who is his father. And they are known as the last of the Mohicans, the, the dying noble breed. They're actually doing quite well. Uh, somehow they managed to survive even after this movie. Uh, the, I, I imagine somebody stepped up and said, wait a minute, I'm a Mohican and it's uh, 2015. I think that there must have been something, something was incorrect at some point. There was actually a lot of disinformation sent out because people didn't really understand because there's two different people groups. They're both Algonquin, but they're separate people groups. There was the Mohican which lived around Albany, New York area, but there were also the Mohicans, which lived around Connecticut area. And they're two separate people groups, and James Fenimore Cooper based his on the Connecticut people, but in reality, a lot of people through name association tended to think of them as the same. But that doesn't matter because both people groups still exist today. Officially registered, there's a little more than a thousand in both tribes. So they're not the biggest of the Native American tribes, but they do both still exist. And moving on to some of these other people groups you mentioned, the Huron. And we, we see these people a lot in our podcast because they're kind of the arch enemy of the Iroquois, the Six Nations. The Mohawk and the Huron did not like each other. They'd been fighting for hundreds of years. And they are going to be basically one of the strongest French allies throughout the French and Indian War. But where it gets confusing is the Six Nations of the Iroquois. Some of the Six Nations were leaning more towards the French and other more towards the English. So you'll have maybe some Seneca going up uh, because they have a lot of relatives living in Huron country due to the, the priests coming down and converting many of them hundreds of years before. So you're going to see some 
of the Five Nation allied with the Iroquois, so nobody can really tell who is on whose side, who's an enemy and who's a friend. And you've also got many other uh, smaller nations from way out in the Ohio country. Uh, the Ottawa were one of them. They came all the way over uh, to fight with the French after hearing about the big defeat of Braddock's, that maybe they could get some plunder. Some other native groups that we had coming all the way from Michigan, we had the Potawatomis, we also had the Miami from Ohio, even some Illinois, and Caleb and I also like to mention that some Winnebago's also came. Were the Hurons, from listening to your show, were they kind of down and out by this time? Yes. The Huron, officially as a nation, were toppled, so to speak, in the mid-1649 I think 1649 is when they are pretty much shattered. And many of the remnants kind of split off and go into different groups. So there are some Huron that go towards Quebec and Montreal and Canada are kind of like these vassal villages around the French towns that are there for protection. Some others traveled out west and went into the Ohio country and eventually became known as the Wyandotte Huron. Oh, okay. So that um, that sounds familiar. The Mohawk, we can talk about them because they're sort of the main players right in that area of um, upstate, way upstate northern New York. What's their story at this point? The Mohawk at this point are kind of a split people, but still a very proud and powerful warrior. The Mohawk were known as the keepers of the Eastern Door. So they're members of the Six Nations, but they're the ones farthest to the east. And because they were furthest to the east, they were the most warlike of the Six Nations because they were constantly dealing with the French and the Huron and the Algonquian people just to the east of them. So throughout history, a lot of people don't know who the Oneida are or the Onondaga are, but everybody has heard of the Mohawk. Mostly because they pioneered a radical hairstyle. (laughs) You laugh, but that's really how they had their hair, is they really would shave it and grow it as a Mohawk, yes. Now, do you know why they would keep the tuft of hair on their head and why they wouldn't just shave everything because you know they actually plucked the hairs they didn't shave them they would pluck everything but the top and they would keep the hair on the top because that way if a warrior killed them they could get their scalp because it would be dishonorable to rob somebody of of their scalp because it was just expected if you got defeated they got that trophy we can talk a little bit about the British. The British are starting to make a name for themselves south of that point. What's the Brit- How are the British fitting in, especially with the Mohawks and the other Native American groups at this point? The British have found a very competent person to help them with their dealings with the Six Nations, a guy named William Johnson. He's actually an Irishman, but he's working for the British Crown, and he's like their Indian superintendent. And he's built a very good relationship with a chief called Heinrich, who is a Mohawk sachem. And so he has gotten a lot of the Mohawks in the area to come over to their side to help them defend this frontier from the French. And this guy, Sir William Johnson, he's actually a militia colonel. He is actually exactly in this time period of this movie, but historically he actually took a musket ball to the leg. So he actually had command of this Fort William Henry that the colonel in the story, Colonel Monroe, is running, but he's actually back in a hospital with half a leg blown off from a musket ball while all this is happening. So he never actually enters the movie itself, but historically he's one of the big players in this story. And also you asked how the British are doing. The British have pretty much had one victory in the last three years of this war. We're a little more than halfway through, and George Washington, many people may not know this, but he was the first person 
was sent out to try and turn the French back, and he had to surrender. And then the British sent a guy named Braddock, and he was totally killed, and his army was decimated, and they were forced to flee. And then we had the Battle of Lake George, which kind of ended in a stalemate. But the British have made no headway. The French are pretty much winning at every turn. But the, the big problem for the French, though, is even though their armies keep winning, the English continue to send more and more colonists. So their population is just growing like 30 times more a year than the French. So the French may have more professional soldiers, but they have no uh, peasants uh, farming back home to send supplies. And so they're starting to suffer from a big logistical problem. And the English, even though they lo they're losing these battles, they're able to kind of soften these losses because they have so many people to choose from. They just send up another draft and raise another army. The French, we should talk about them too, that they're to wrap our minds around it, their control is way up in the north, but it also sweeps down, like you were saying, with George Washington. He was fighting in Pittsburgh, and that was a French fort, and Fort Niagara was French. And you say the French are winning at this point. Tell us a little bit more about the French and what puts them in the place they're in, and what are their relationships with the with their Native American allies at that point? The French have been in North America since back 200 years before this. But it really started when Champlain came in the early 1600s, and he built very good relationships with the Ottawa, the Algonquin, and the Huron people. And the French kind of had this mindset that don't treat the Indians like crap, and they'll trade with us more freely. And the French goal was not to mass import lots of people into the area. It was just have enough people here to set up trading posts so that we can get these very lucrative furs to bring back to Europe that will fetch a very good price. So when the French initially set up these forts, they're little more than lean-tos with maybe a stockade fence around them. And so they set them up all along key choke points on the Great Lakes, on these rivers like the Ohio, the Mississippi. Some of you may have heard of another French colony at the time, uh, Louisiana. The French at this point also had their southern colonies. So they kept pushing around the Ohio country using the watersheds to basically try and make a huge crescent moon that the English and the colonist frontiersmen would then basically bump up into a wall and they couldn't push any further west. So that was their goal all along. So we're going to see link by link that chain is going to start popping and we're going to see all these French blockhouses and trading posts all the way down the Mississippi to Louisiana up to the Great Lakes are going to be completely cut off and stranded. But because the French are here, you know, if you open up a history book, even today, open up an American history book and look at the map that they have for the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, depending what you've got. I guarantee you, you'll open this up and there'll be shaded red for British. It'll be the whole eastern seaboard into the Appalachian Mountains and all upper Canada around Hudson Bay will be shaded red, and everything else will be shaded blue. Canada all the way down the Mississippi Valley, and then it'll be half blue, half red shaded. And it won't have any mention of any Native Americans mm -hmm. there. When in reality, they're controlling everything. The French are there at their pleasure. The French have been invited and allowed to stay, but they're, you know, there's a few dozen to maybe a few hundred people in each of these forts. It's these various native villages that are running the show. That's what really changed my whole view of that conflict in that area is that New York and into Michigan and um, Ohio, that that was really Native American, Iroquois, Haudenosaunee country. 
how were they governing that area? And there must have been certain conflicts as British people who are, I guess you'd call them Americans now, they were moving into that area. How were they integrating with each other at that point? Well, they weren't integrating very well. Basically, no matter who you asked, they would tell you they're the ones running the show. And that includes the Indian nations that were there at the time. If you talk to somebody back in Albany in New York, he would tell you that's English territory. And there's a couple French miscreants in there, but we're going to chase them out. And then if you went up to Montreal, they would say, well, that's obviously French territory. And there's a couple English miscreants that we got to chase them out. And also the Sixth Nations said, that's our hunting territory and we're moving smaller nations there. And then you'd ask one of the smaller nations there and they'd say, no, I've, my family's lived here for as long as time can tell. And this is our land. So you're having everybody kind of argue over who's actually in charge. And nobody's really pushing the subject because the French know that they don't really own it. And the English know they don't really own it. So they're basically all just trying to appease anybody that they can in order to further their trade and their land speculations. The Iroquois ran their government was, it was very autonomous from the individual to the village to the national level where they had their national council of elders. And the Iroquois claimed by right of conquest the whole Ohio territory and Michigan all the way west. Now, did they really control it? Not really, but when they had these people come into their confederacy, they said that if you have any dealings with the French or British, you need to come to us and we will negotiate whatever you want to happen. And that's how they were able to retain a loose control. But in day-to-day -day lives, it's not like the Iroquois man was coming around with the tax purse demanding pelts from everybody. Was that um, something that hurt them as they were going on, that they didn't have more central control and more ability to raise armies to directly confront the British or the French? It's, it's really different because it's a different mindset than us in Western thinking. We, we think of centralized government and efficient armies. There, there was an issue. In your village, people could decide to go to war, and if somebody decided not to go back, nobody thought any different of you. So they were looking out for their best interests, but it wasn't an empire like we think of an empire. It's, it's difficult to explain. As we're drilling down into the movie, the main character, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, his name, and he had, we were talking about this, he has like 10 names, but his name in the movie is Nathaniel Poe, and he's based off a character from the book, Nathaniel Bumpo. He is a American, white American, who's been adopted into a Mohican family. What was the story? Because that was a common thing where somebody would be adopted. And what, what might have been a typical story of how a white person would become a Native American? In the movie, it mentions that when he was two years old, his parents were killed and he became a prisoner of the Huron. And at which point his Mohican father somehow either ransomed him or purchased him and adopted him as his own son. We see countless stories throughout history where similar things happen. In fact, a lot of times you'll see white children and women get abducted in a raid and they'll go and be adopted into a various Indian nation. And a year later, they might show up with a ransom to get them and the women and children wouldn't want to come back. They would say, no, I'm, this is part of my family now. And this really pulled at the heartstrings of a lot of white people because they looked at it like, even if uh, I can get my kid back, he's gone. He'll, he'll, never, he'll never be the same. And a lot of people were even teaching their, their wives to commit suicide rather than be abducted 
by Indians. It, it was very different. Benjamin Franklin writes in some of his letters saying, the Indians can go out and hunt and fish and make war, and the women have complete freedom, and the women, it's a matrilineal society, the women appoint the leaders. So they were thinking to themselves, why would we want to go back? Why would we want to be serfs working on a farm and starving to death all the time and have to pay taxes? Or we can have these people that totally accept us for who we are. And that's, you look at a lot of the early writings, people didn't understand what was going on. They thought that they were taking them as slaves. But they were really replacing them for people that had died in their family whether it was from disease or war or some other natural occurrence, and then you could do this ceremony where you would replace their spirit. The spirit of your dead loved one would come upon them, and it was like having them back from the dead. And so, Steve, if you capture Caleb and take him back to replace a lost grandfather or something of yours, well, you're going to love Caleb now mm -hmm. because he's got the spirit of your grandfather. Why would you ever want to do anything to harm him or make fun of him because of his skin color? That really plays into their mindset when they're going into these conflicts that really changes it all it's important to note that especially white people we kind of look at each other as white or black or yellow or red but uh, a lot of the native americans didn't look like that they looked at you're one of us or you're not one of us uh, we see throughout history there's many uh, african slaves that escaped and actually became adopted uh, certain missionaries and tradesmen noted in their logs that they saw, you know, a black guy, a black Indian uh, or a white Indian. But they didn't look at you like you, you were a different skin color. You were one of them. And even among the white people, they were dividing themselves more. One Puritan group that didn't like the other one would go and sit in there or the, um, the Dutch. You know, everybody was dividing themselves and sure. not combining themselves. So that... That probably even left another opening for the native, you know, the Iroquois or any of the other groups to doing something. I'll point out one difference between the movie and the novel right off the bat. In the movie, he's a Mohican adopted, but in the book, he's actually raised by Delaware people, and Chingachagook is his foster brother, not foster father. Oh, okay. So that's a real difference right to start. But regardless, in both instances, he's adopted by a local Algonquin-speaking people group. And he seems to really play in both camps. And I wonder, is that something that uh, was common? Is that somebody could, you know, the the white settlers really respected him, but he was also highly respected amongst the native people. Was that common or was once um, somebody like him went into and became adopted into the natives and adopted their culture, were they excluded from the the white society, so to speak. Bringing that up uh, reminds me of Sir William Johnson. We already briefly mentioned he's actually one of the main colonels running this whole war. And he was actually married to a, uh, a Native American woman, and he was adopted into one tribe, which is why he had so much influence over many different nations. They looked at him like he was one of them, but yet he also could relate to the white English people. You're going to see that throughout this whole portion of American history, the people that are really the movers and the shakers that are getting things done are people that have taken the time to mix their cultures with the Native American and the colonials, learn both the languages, and, uh, and go from there. One of the first scenes, and probably the first most important scene, is the British, 
Major Duncan, he's bringing uh, Colonel Monroe's two daughters, and they're in Colonial Albany, which is a really cool scene. Let's talk a little bit about what the British forces look like at that point. Historically, the English footmen, the lobsterbacks, if you will, aren't really at their peak of performance yet. They're kind of bumbling around, and, you know, they stand in the lines, and they try to be professional, but they're very good at dying. I think it's kind of ironic that the people in Star Trek, the red the red shirts, you know, are the people that always die. In this movie, it's the same way. You have the six main characters, and then you have somebody wearing a red coat, and they're the ones that always get killed. Uh, but when Major Duncan shows up at Albany, he's, he's going there, and he meets General Webb, who is in charge of all the English forces in the area. And right away, they're kind of portraying Major Duncan and also the general as kind of snobs stereotypical English officers, basically, who think everybody's beneath them. And I think it's important to point out that in the book, Major Duncan is actually a much younger man. He's only like 19 or 20 years old, and he's he's actually a pretty cool guy. He's all about honor. He becomes very good friends uh, with the other protagonists in the movie. But in this, they kind of make him into kind of like a not a full-on bad guy, but kind of like a you know, a conniving, he cares more about the king than anybody else type of thing. And this is also the scene where we get introduced to Magua. Yeah, Magua is really cool. One other thing, if we can take just a little sidetrack, there was a really cool part where they show them grinding up the apples. Mm. And I had read something about how much hard cider people drank back then. A man drank like a gallon of it a day. And even children, like I have a nine-year-old daughter, she would have probably drank three, you know, a third to a half a gallon of hard cider. Did you know a why? Day. Not really. I, you know, hear some of the tales, but let's hear a little bit more. Pretty much, uh, sanitation was sub third-world standard at the time, and people would die of cholera and dysentery all the time. And so, the best way to get your H2O for the day was you needed to sanitize it somehow. Well, the best way to do that is to have it turn into alcohol. And a lot of times what they would do is they wouldn't just drink straight rum or straight hard cider or straight ale. They would pour like half and half, and the alcohol inside it would dilute. So that way they could still get their hydration. Because we'll notice today, if we're really dehydrated and we start chugging beers, we get sick and it doesn't help. So they wouldn't drink it straight. They would water it down, kill the bacteria. But yeah, it's amazing just the amount that they would drink. (laughs) Like throughout a lot of these battles, they have to lower their rum rations to only three pints a day and things like that. And people start rioting. Oh, this is this is unreasonable. Three pints of rum a day. Uh, That was a nice slice of life. What was a slice of life in a place like Fort William Henry where they're going to right now and let's talk a little bit about what was going on in fort william henry i wouldn't want to be there for one when we say fort you want to think of one of these wilderness forts how they depicted in the movie is actually how it was it was logs laid down with dirt covering up to make bastions with log style buildings on the inside the fort could realistically only it was only made to hold about 500 people and in the movie, Monroe has, I believe, between two and 3,000 soldiers at his disposal. So because there's not enough room, they've basically made these trenches around the fort where he's putting a lot, a lot of his soldiers. So it's a very uncomfortable place to be right now. In that scene, too, they start talking about gathering the New York militia. What was the militia at that time, and why 
what was the settlers place in defending their own colony and were they doing some things there that were maybe poking the enemies around them technically speaking all of the the males between a certain age that lived in these colonies could be called up for militia duty and if they didn't show up there'd basically be like a fine put in and then they'd use that money to buy supplies for the people that did show up so you're right in this movie at one point the the british regulars are there and they're trying to encourage the locals to to form a militia and there's a lot of pushback at this because a lot of people are hesitant to leave their their uh, outskirt farms undefended with their wives and their children there. I, I can picture being very hesitant myself and join the militia uh, without any guarantee that they're going to be looked after. So the militia leaders actually get into an argument with General Webb about this exact thing. And they, they basically tell him, we'll join you, but only if you will allow us to leave if the frontier becomes under attack by Indian raid. And this actually sets up a lot of drama in the movie because later in the movie we see that they do start attacking, but mean old Colonel Monroe won't let them leave because uh, he doesn't want to lose the couple hundred men. We have to remember, too, that that's right near Albany, and it's not too far away where that's the hardcore frontier. Like, we're in Canandaigua right now, and we're, what, about maybe 200-ish miles from, miles from Albany, and I'm from Buffalo, which is maybe another 100-ish miles away there would have been probably, what, maybe no white farmsteaders here? No, definitely not. You know, and they probably really wouldn't have been coming for another 50, 60 years after that. So we're talking about that as the frontier. Like, the after that, there's not a white person or a white farmer after that point. There's some German Palatine settlements out near Schenectady and modern-day Herkimer. And that is the absolute limit. There's nobody beyond that. There's another scene in that first scene where we get a real slice of life of Albany where the Iroquois Braves start playing lacrosse. And lacrosse is not a game where, uh, you know, maybe a, a bunch of junior varsity players go out on the high school. What's the lacrosse to a Native American in the 1750s? Lacrosse is their national pastime, but it's even more than that. They call it the creator's game. They view it as having several purposes. One is as an outlet to express your manliness and to play for the pleasure of the creator because he enjoys it when people can do recreation. Secondary, it was also to train you for battle because a lot of the moves are the same you would use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So waving your lacrosse stick around or throwing things back and forth could get the it's kind of like if you go back to Karate Kid with Mr. Miyagi, paint the fence. <laughs> oh, that's teaching me karate. Well, same thing here. Also, with old lacrosse, the way that they used to play it, uh, it was much more violent than you see it today. You could actually, you know, jar people with your shoulders, hit people with the sticks. A lot more like hockey. Yeah, it was basically uh, Canadian <laughs> hockey. But this would uh, train people to take a hit and still get up and, and continue to fight and not just go to the ground crying. You would get hit throughout the entire game and you were just expected to suck it up until the game was over. It could also work on your hand-eye coordination with the ball, passing it from person to person. So this was a huge staple on training them to be warriors. They're chatting amongst themselves. There's um, Hawkeyes there, Chinjot... A chinga chagook. I think we'll just have Andrew say it every time, and then we'll that because he's got that one figured out. And some of the other stakeholders who are going to be called up to go to William Henry, they're chatting there, and the settlers are kind of, for the lack of a better word, they're PO'd that they might have to leave their farms. 
they had what well, like we were saying they had some obligation to go and it was really they're the ones getting protected so they're expected to protect themselves what are the native americans place in all of that and what was their stake in what was going on why would they want to go and fight for either one of those sides in a big siege of a fort well the mohawks that are part of this area would be discussing among themselves whether they want to go or not and it would be totally up to them but the french are no fans of them and they may be concerned that the French are going to come down and burn their villages, which is a, a legitimate thought that could happen. A lot of the other nations, you have to remember that the best way to distinguish yourself in an Indian village was through warfare. Bringing back trophies for your village, bringing back captives, that was how you would earn honor. A lot of people have not been able to fight for the last generation because it's so convoluted, like... Okay, we're allies with the English, and they say we can't fight our old enemies here. So you have a lot of people that don't really have an opportunity to distinguish themselves in their villages. But then this comes up, and you're like, okay, the French and the English are at war. What, what of our young men are going to go fight with our French fathers? And another village might be saying, what of our young men are going to go fight with the English? However, Native American culture, especially in the Northeast Woodlands, is totally different on their idea of honor in war. To them, it's defeating an enemy and bringing back trophies. That's how you distinguish yourself in honor and war. For us, it's risking your life in a firefight, and if you die, that's the greatest sacrifice in American culture. You've died for your country. In their culture, you're taught, do not throw your life away for nothing. A lot of the people make notes, uh, the people that dealt with the Indians back then, and they, they're constantly calling them cowards. They always run away whenever things get scary. And that's why they looked at it like it is a dishonor to die. People would tell them, it's an honor to die. What do you mean it's an honor to die? Yeah. That means they beat you. That means you lost. If you lose, that doesn't mean that you have honor. You need to be the last one living. That's the good thing. And uh, maybe they've got a point there. How much were the Native Americans adopting European ways? Like We see that a lot of them are using iron weapons and guns. Were they adopting other things too? Like, would you have seen them living in a more European style house or maybe um, wearing like one of those funny wigs or more, you know, was there, were they crossing over? Yes. And especially the Mohawk, because they are right here mixing with British and French and Dutch cultures. Yes. A few years later, when the British are attacking up in Canada, they show up and they start burning this village thinking it's a French village, but it was actually an Iroquois village, and they had built the log-style cabins that we commonly think of in the frontier. Uh, we had mentioned King Heinrich. He has died before this movie takes place, but if you look at Google any picture of him, he's wearing a British wig and a British red coat. When it's time to leave Albany, Duncan, he gathers up Monroe's daughters, and there's maybe a company, a couple of British soldiers, not a ton, but they're in their full regalia, the red coats and the you know, the muskets with uh, bayonets and they march up a track and they are ambushed. The British soldiers, they just do their standard. They stand there and they're fire. At that point, is that still the tactics that they would have used? Have the British learned anything yet, rather? <laughs> uh, not long before this, Braddock's entire force is decimated because they stand there. And they are still doing this to a point. After the French and Indian War, that's when they're finally going to learn. And But even in the Revolutionary War, if you recall, they're still standing there in columns mm -hmm. against the French and, and uh, against the American colonists. So 
it's still happening, but it's definitely uh, starting to go out of style. You're starting to see a lot of the generals lean more on having these ranger attachments uh, where they dress in green and they fight like the Indians. Basically, they were thinking, okay, we still want the discipline of the Redcoats marching in order, but we need to use them in a certain situation and use our rangers and our Indians in another. They, they did not give up on it entirely yet. They were still trying to hold on to it. In the movie, however, I'd like to point out that Magua is leading them here. So Magua and his associates are supposed to be the scouts that are watching out to prevent this ambush. But Magua has betrayed them, and these are his men that are fighting to ambush them. Magua is an interesting character because he was born a Huron, but was taken captive and adopted into the Mohawk. But he always keeps in the back of his mind that he's really a Huron and he kind of carries it as a chip on his shoulder. How common would that have been? Or is there much in the historical record where somebody is taken captive, but he still holds his grudges of what happened? We see that quite a bit, actually. And we see it sometimes where um, they may get adopted. Say this, this circumstance, he gets adopted into the Mohawk. He may go to the Huron as an embassy and be like, I was born a Huron, my blood is Huron, now I'm a Mohawk. And they would use him as basically a senator because he can relate to both and he has family on both sides. So that wasn't uncommon. In the movie, everyone trusts him because they just don't ask questions. Oh, he's a Mohawk. Mohawks are allies with the English, so we can trust him. And after this ambush, Hawkeye shows up and saves the day just in the nick of time. Once all the Redcoats are dead and it's just the main characters left, yeah. he, he just so happens to show up just in time. And he's the one that tells them, he's not a Mohawk, he's a Huron. And they say, no, he's a Mohawk. And he says, uh, okay, he's lived with the Mohawk, but he's a Huron and he's our enemy. And they have, I mean, with um, Mogwai, like he would have to have brought that whole troop along with them. You know, all of his, his company, for lack of a better word, of Native American Mohawk Braves, he would have had to have convinced them to also cross over the line, which probably would have been difficult. In a later scene, you see Magua talking to Montcalm, the French general, and uh, he's asking him if he was successful, implying that, you know, this, this was a whole elaborate thing that yeah. the general knew about the whole time to capture the general's daughters. And the real reason that Magua is upset is not that he was captured and raised as a Mohawk. The thing that he's upset about is he was captured and taken, and when by the time he got back to his village, he found out that his wife had married another man and his children were killed by British soldiers. And that's why Magua's upset. Uh, in the book, I'll note that it's actually quite different. In the book, Magua is this great renowned chief of the Huron, and the English are constantly trading alcohol only to him, and he becomes a drunk, and everyone shuns him. Oh. And he goes into the wilderness shunned and embarrassed and eventually throws away the alcohol and gets adopted by the Mohawk. And so he has this hatred of the English because he thinks that they are doing this intentionally to all of his people. And some of them were. Yeah. But, uh, but he, I just thought it was uh, interesting how it was very different. But in both the book and the movie, he's got this hatred of Monroe and the English in general. And there's nothing that can be done to appease him. Both ways, he still has some legitimate grievances, too. I mean, you really can't uh, fault him too much for not being a big fan of Monroe and the British. I'll give the screenwriter and the, the writer of the book some credit for that because it would have been very easy just to make him an angry, savage villain that 
you know, the white man has to rise up to conquer. And I think that it is cool that you actually have some depth that he really did have some real grievances that any one of us might have done the same yeah. thing put in his situation. After the ambush, that's when Hawkeye and Chinga Chaguk and Uncas, they're they're the ones who actually save the day. They take Major Duncan and Monroe's two daughters away. How does he lead them to the fort? And then what do they find when they finally get to the fort? Well, they think that the Colonel Monroe has invited his daughters to come there because the French are a million miles away. Duncan says, we're going to the fort by ourselves. And Nathaniel Hawkeye says, no, you'll never make it. There's too many patrols. We'll take you there. Even though it's out of our way and we don't have to, we will. And doesn't hurt that the ladies are pretty and good looking too. But when they get there, they find out that the entire fort is being besieged by a French Indian army. Yeah, when they get there, General Montcalm has Fort William Henry completely surrounded, and he has far superior numbers to Monroe's 2,000 or to 2,500 men. He has more like six or 7,000. So Colonel Monroe is holding out for dear life because he knows that General Webb has 6,000 men only 12 miles away, and he thinks that any day he's going to be showing up and he's going to be able to lift the siege. So when they arrive at the fort, they meet a excited <laughs> Colonel Monroe who is waiting to hear, so where is Webb? Where is he? I'm glad you guys are safe, but when, when are the reinforcements are coming? And at which point Major Duncan tells him that uh, we didn't even know you were besieged. Monroe says, what do you mean? I sent a messenger like three days ago. And he says, one never got to us. And he says, I sent it with my trusty Magua and two other people. And they realize that uh, Magua has killed the other two messengers and uh, burned the letter. So Webb has no idea that the fort is on its last legs. He's not going to be able to get there in time. And this is basically uh, Monroe is trying to make sure that this doesn't get out because mass panic will ensue if they think that there's no reinforcements coming. And the reinforcements don't come. What happens? What's the ultimate fate of the fort? Well, he tries to hold out for a while. In the movie, people start hearing rumors that the Indians are being set loose and attacking settlements. And our protagonist actually came across a farm of people they knew where the people had been killed and tomahawked to death. And if you recall earlier, the militia joined with the assurance that they would be allowed to leave if that happened. So now it's being announced that that's happening, but this is going to be another opportunity for them to make Duncan almost like a bad guy. He lies to the colonel and he says, I didn't see anything that would lead me to believe that. And Monroe says, anybody caught trying to leave the fort will be shot as a deserter. And of course, Hawkeye feels for them all. And so Hawkeye makes a diversion to help them escape. He covers them with uh, sniper fire so that they can punch a hole to try and get through the siege lines. Yeah, and they're building layers of reasons. That's what I thought was kind of interesting about the movie is we don't really like Duncan. We don't really like Monroe. We don't really like Montcalm. We don't like Maguan. There's <laughs> there's kind of reasons to like them, too. The movie is really complicated that way. Which is good because life is really complicated. Yeah. And a lot of times Hollywood sim tries to simplify things too much. But in this movie in particular, they really kept the confusing dynamic and maybe some people have reasons for doing what they're doing on both sides. And I really caught that with this movie. Monroe ultimately has to surrender. Was that an actual surrender? Did that whole 
battle for William Fort William Henry happen in real life? Yes, we actually have an episode called Fort William Henry, and we see that uh, Colonel Monroe is given many opportunities to surrender, and he keeps refusing, even though he eventually finds out that reinforcements aren't coming. Even though his bastions are falling and he's outnumbered, he just continues to refuse to surrender. At one point, Montcalm comes up to him and he asks for surrender and he says no and he starts to walk away. And this is where something comes into the movie that actually happened. He says, okay, we're going to go back into the fort and fight to the death. And Montcalm says, please, sir, I have a message for you, a letter from General Webb. And what did the letter say? Well, the letter said, uh, hang in there, I'll be there in 15 minutes with reinforcements. Oh, cool. Uh, No, it didn't say that. Uh, It actually... (laughs) Said, uh, dear Colonel Monroe, um, we have reinforcements, but I don't feel like sending them, so try and get a good terms for a surrender. Love, General Webb. <laughs> Why does Webb leave them hanging 12 miles? Okay, yeah, I mean, we can drive 12 miles in like 10 minutes. So, But so, I mean, if you're pushing it back then, it might have taken them a day. People have been pondering that for hundreds of years. Me personally, I think that he still got Braddock's defeat in his mind. When Braddock was marching through the Ohio Territory, it was the fact that they were all stretched out in a long column that they were so vulnerable to Indian attack. I think he's picturing if I try and move my forces here, they're going to get attacked on the road, and then I'm going to look like the bumbling idiot. So I think he would rather Colonel Monroe look like the bumbling idiot, and then, you know, he can take things from there. That's my guess. Uh, There's probably some other things that went into place, but we have the letters we covered in some of our other episodes where we actually have the letters back and forth between Monroe and Webb and constantly Monroe saying, please send forces. And he just is not having any of it, even though they're very close. Could Webb have done something or would he have weakened his position at he was at Fort George, right? He was at Fort Edward. He was at Fort Edward. Could he have done actually helped out Monroe, or would that have weakened his position too much at Fort Edward? Only if he was defeated, because, there, like we said, this is a choke point. There's no French going to invade from the south. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if he went up there and his army was defeated, then, theoretically, the French could come down, take Fort Edward, and move on to Albany. But... That's a lot of they don't have to They could leave two men back at the fort, and they don't have to worry about anybody coming in from any other direction, no. We ultimately we have the scene where Monroe does have to quit. Maybe we can discuss that a little bit. Why he has to surrender? What forces him? He's, his hand is basically forced. Colonel to Monroe, he's kind of a tough old Scotsman, and you do get that impression in the movie. He's tough. He's not going to surrender. He's willing to go down for honor. He's willing to die for honor to defend the fort. And he's shown that to Montcalm. And Montcalm is starting to run a little low on supplies. He still has in a lot better shape than Colonel Monroe. But Monroe basically tells him, I'm not going to send all of my men to go on your prison ships for the next three years because prison ships are not a good place. In fact, about three-quarters of the people that go on prison ships a lot of times die because there's no air conditioning on prison ships and there's no food on prison ships. So in the movie, he turns from Montcalm and he says... Uh, I'm going to go in there, we'll dig our graves, and we'll fight to the death. And at which point Montcalm steps forward and says, Please, monsieur, please at least listen to what I have to say. You will not be prisoners. You will sign that you will not fight for the rest of the war. You will get to keep all your arms. 
you will get to keep all of your flags because just like in Roman times, you got to keep your colors. That was a big, big thing. As long as you could keep your flags and your colors and carry them back, you still had your honor. All of the militia, everybody will get to keep their personal property, and the militia will just have to sign something saying that they will go back to their farms and farm in peace. That really happened. Monroe, he turns around in the movie, and he says, let me talk to my officers, and he's like, uh, we're doing this because we're not getting any better. All they basically asked was for the fort, and the fort has been completely blown to smithereens at this point, <laughs> and Webb even says that at this point. He says, my orders are from the king that you should leave this area, so I'm perfectly happy as long as you leave. He can claim that he was victorious, and meanwhile, they can all save face, and they only have to march 12 miles south down to Fort Edward. One scene that, that really happened that's not in the movie that I think should have made the movie was the dinner scene. Because in real life, after this, Monroe and Montcalm and their officers sit down, they set up a table outside the fort, candlelight, fine china, everything, and they have a meal together while the French native allies stand there. Oh, is there any perspective of from the Indian side of what they thought about that? Yes. They did not like it. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> because remember how we mentioned earlier that a lot of these people came from Michigan and Wisconsin and Illinois? They walked all this way to help the French out because they had alliances with them. And they were promised to be paid in the spoils of war. And they marched all the way here and got nothing. And in the movie... Magua kind of hints at this. Magua's in it for revenge, but his troops also want spoils because he he comes to Montcalm later that night in the night, and that's the, the famous scene where Magua tells his backstory to everyone. But he says, the white men sit and dine, and the Indians have no scalps. The spoils, well, spoils are scalps, but you're not expecting very much if you just take a fort. Were they expecting that they'd be able to get into the frontier villages and do spoils? Like, what were they looking for in spoils? They were probably promised the moon. You know, whenever people sign up for war, mm -hmm. they tell them, oh, you know, you'll get whatever. But pretty much they're looking for everyday products that we would think of. Knives, tomahawks, clothes, clothes guns. A lot of them are still uh, having to deal with deer skins. A lot of these people live in colder climates where they don't have good clothes. So just killing somebody and taking their entire set of clothes, that was a lot of money. It was just like in the Oregon Trail game where clothes were where it was at. You could get more money selling clothes to Indians than you could any other thing because they didn't have looms and everything set up in America yet. They had to import everything from Europe. And we sort you sort of alluded to the fact that the Native Americans weren't very happy about how this whole thing went down. In the movie, they have a scene where Montcalm and Magua are hashing it out. And Montcalm, he's not very convinced that the British are just going to go home, like he said. So what happens in that scene? And what maybe, how can we tie that into maybe how the Native Americans would have really felt after one of these things where they're basically told, we're going to give you this, but in the end, you don't get any of it and go take a hike. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And I think that the majority of it probably isn't accurate. But what happens is, like you said, Magua is meeting with Montcalm and Montcalm basically tells him, my hands are tired because I have this thing, French honor, and we made peace, so I can't do anything. And then he kind of winks at Magua and says, 
but there's nothing stopping you from doing anything. And then he has a little smile on his face as he sneaks into the night and disappears. The scene with Magua talking to Montcalm, I thought that was really interesting because the dynamic between Magua and Montcalm, they're almost talking to each other like equals, but Magua's he's kind of taking a little bit of a subservient role, but not really. And with Montcalm, he's really, he's dealing fairly with Magua, where he's basically stabbed Monroe in the back in this scene. What were the relationships between, especially the French and their native allies? It seemed a little bit more collegial than the British had with their native allies. That's a great point. And I think that that does a good job showing why so many more of the Native Americans in the Northeast were drawn to the relationships with the French because they were willing to treat them on an equal level. Champlain mentioned when he met with them that your daughters will marry my sons, my sons will marry your daughters. You know, really great words implying on how they're all equal and how they can become friends. And there was a lot of that still going on this couple hundred years later where the French were just better at respecting the beliefs and really nurturing friendships with these people. There was a dynamic where the Native Americans called the French general or governor Ananteo, which meant father. And we kind of hear when you hear the term great white father, you kind of think, okay, all right, what, yeah. what is this? Um, but it really was a more equality thing where a father is taking care of his children, not taking care of them like I know what's best for you, taking care like looking after them presenting gifts and trade goods and having a good ongoing relationship, that kind of father-child relationship versus the father saying, you need to move 500 miles west now. Yeah, and also a father-son relationship was something very different to a colonial family to a Native American family because they were raised in a clan system where uncles and mothers and everybody had much more of an influence on your day-to-day life than your father. Your father was basically, you know, a background person that, like Andrew said, would look after you. And the French and the British really were both hierarchical as all get out. So you're not really saying that it's just using different terminology. It's not like the the king really is like a father or a a way high ranking governor in general. They're just not using the terminology father when it's really almost the same relationship. So after the fort is finally surrendered, the British are going to march back to Fort Edward. And how many miles did we say it was? 12 miles. 12 miles. So they're going to march out and they're going to leave some of their sick and wounded behind. And Montcalm has assured Colonel Monroe that they will be well taken after and you are allowed to head out unmolested. Meanwhile, during the movie, Hawkeye has been put in chains and they're going to eventually execute him when they get back to Fort Edward because they found out that he was involved in the conspiracy for the militia to get out. So he's being let out. And so you kind of see this train of people going out in the movie, which I think shows a very accurate description of how it went. You see British redcoats, you see Monroe on his horse, you see women and children who are like the fort helpers, you see Africans that are there as slaves or indentured servants, and you see native allied Indians there marching all in this British column, marching out. So it's very accurate, the demographical makeup of the fort. Plus, they're going 12 miles. It's not like they're marching to the ends of the moon. I mean, somebody could run 12 miles in an hour, not me, but somebody (laughs) could technically. 
one of the things that Colonel Monroe brought up to Montcalm is uh, we need our powder out there because we could be attacked by the Indians. And Montcalm says, don't worry, you know, I made all the chiefs promise that uh, they would not attack you. And he actually did. Uh, he, the chiefs didn't do a very good job at talking to their warriors and making sure their warriors <laughs> promised. But yeah, they had all their weapons with them. They were in good health. They had assurances from the chiefs and the French that they wouldn't be attacked. So nobody was really expecting anything. So in the movie, Magua is there, and he's got... It really is an amazing scene. I mean, the way they film it, it looks like there's literally hundreds of Native Americans here hiding mm-hmm. in the woods. And they've got them flanked on both sides, and the columns walking through this open area in between two forests. And then you just they're just marching, and they're really sad because they just lost. And this one brave comes running out and just bashes somebody in over the head. Everyone's like, huh, what's going on? And then another one happens, and a chilling war cry comes out from both sides of the woods, and everybody's looking around. I can, I can just feel your heart starts pounding. Oh, no. Oh, no. They hear the stories of what's happened yeah. before to Braddock and these other people, and then you just see puffs of smoke and clouds, and you hear the whiz of bullets, and they're getting laid into on both sides. And then once the muskets fire... Everybody just charges in, and it's a melee. It's an amazing scene. How does that line up to what really happened after the surrender of uh, Fort William Henry? Uh, It's quite different. Uh, There was kind of a massacre, but it wasn't a planned attack on the column itself. Like we said, there was this group of angry Native Americans who were promised plunder to take back to their, their families, and they've gotten nothing. So they are really angry at Montcalm, and Montcalm has just said, you guys better not do anything, and they said, oh, okay. As all of the column leaves the fort, who's going to be in the back? Women, children. And the sick. Yeah. So that's what ends up happening, and how it starts is these Indians go up to the back of the column, and they basically just start grabbing stuff off their wagons. They'll take a hat, or they'll take something laying down, or... If you've got a sidearm, they'll just grab that. So they're just coming along and they're just grabbing it. Violently. And the majority of the troops, you know, picture 3,000 people stretched out on a little road. The people at the, the, far, uh, the far end probably can't even hear gunshots coming mm-hmm. from the back of the column. It's so far away. And they kind of caught that in the movie in the scene where the guy comes up and bashes somebody. The line is starting to think, hey, is something going on back there? But nobody really knows. But they didn't actually do a full-out attack on the actual British Redcoats. They were attacking the people in the back of the column, and it starts with just taking a few things. But then things start to escalate, and they escalate when supposedly a Huron warrior grabs an infant from a mother's arms because she wouldn't give him, you know, whatever she had that he wanted. They said it was a shawl. And uh, he dashes the infant to the ground, killing it instantly. And then all of a sudden, as soon as he does that, everyone just starts attacking one way to another. In real life, Monroe gets on his horse and starts riding around and telling the people, do not fight back, do not resist, do not escalate this. Give them whatever they want. They just want your stuff and they'll leave us alone. But when somebody's up in your face, how do you really listen to that? What happens, what's the fate of that column in real life? They, They did portray this, especially English propagandists, as a huge dishonor on the French. You know, they implied that Montcalm worked with the, the Indians to get them while they were down after promising peace. 
and they said that you know they lost half of the men. Realistically, I think they're thinking a couple hundred people were killed, and um, that number may be even lower. It could be in the dozens of range because it's hard to get a number because several people were actually kidnapped oh, okay. and taken back to villages as captives. When the British get a hold of this and they publish it in the newspapers, they say that 3,000 people are massacred. And when you hear that number, you're just like, oh my goodness, those dirty, sneaky French sicking those Indians loose. And so that's where this story comes from. But in reality, it didn't happen. And in fact, in real life, this is a huge shame for Montcalm. And Montcalm has to ask these Indians that have captured all these people to return them. And he personally has to dole out money and presents and items to ransom them back as many as he possibly can because he's worried about what's going to be printed about him so the movie kind of got it tapped into that propaganda element really well with it it just so happened that it just didn't happen that way (laughs) (laughs) but it makes it makes for a more entertaining scene but yes it's total british propaganda did not happen that way at all so we pretty much talked about that this ambush didn't happen as such But Magua gets his revenge against Monroe, who he refers to as the white hair throughout the movie. That scene where he uh, kills Monroe taps into a lot of the things that, um, a lot of the cultural elements that the Native Americans had. What did Magua happen to do to Monroe? Well, in the movie, he shoots his horse out from underneath him and comes up on him, tells him that he's going to kill him and then he's going to kill his daughters. And I just wanted to let you know that before you die. (laughs) (laughs) And then he takes out his knife and proceeds to carve a hole in his chest and reach between his ribs and pull out his heart while he's staring up. And the last thing he sees is him holding his heart. So that really happened, right, Caleb? Uh, It may have, but I don't know how, if if it did happen, it happened, uh, Back in a hospital where Monroe was sitting in Fort Edward three weeks later. Because uh, Monroe didn't die during the ambush. He was perfectly fine at the far south end of the column, leaving the fort. He he probably didn't even see any of this fighting going on. Uh, by the time he got there, the Indians had already taken all their stuff and left. So he actually died weeks later after this. And of natural causes or an illness. Unless... Dun dun dun! Magua really sneaked, sneaked or snucked, <laughs> sneaked into his window, cut out his heart, and made it look like he just died of dysentery. <laughs> so I guess we'll leave that one open. We don't know what happened. <laughs> Nobody knows at all. After Hawkeye, Chingachagook, and Uncas, and Hayward, and the girls, they're able. They escape, and there's all sorts of like cool chase scenes in canoes down waterfalls. Eventually, though. Hawkeye knows that they're, for the lack of a better word, screwed. That they're going to get caught one way or the other. So he's, Hawkeye's plan is to just let them get caught. And Alice, Cora, and Major Duncan get brought back to a Huron village. That Huron village scene, that actually seems to have captured a lot of what was going on and how the Native Americans related to war captives what happened in that scene and what can we maybe learn a little bit more about how something like that would have happened that was a cool scene and there was actually a lot more to it just like you mentioned when they're there uh, they're hiding in a waterfall with the beautiful monroe daughters and everything and they're like we can't do anything here so we should leave and then we'll come and try and rescue you later by talking to the chief that actually made sense because uh when the huron warriors rush in they're there for war 
But if he, you let them capture the daughters and take them to the chief, and then you can get an audience with their sachem or their chief and explain the situation or offer to ransom them, all of a sudden you're then a diplomat. And that was kind of the goal with that. If we can get there and have an actual discussion, not on the warpath, people will listen to us. But right now, when they're there to fight, it doesn't matter what you say. They're not going to listen to you because they're there to fight. This is warfare. But yeah, when they take them to the Huron village... It, it really does kind of show the, the different clashes of cultures and everything because you have uh, Hawkeye, who's British but or white, but raised by Indians, asking the English guy to translate French to the Huron chief. And, you know, that's just a really cool scene where there are all these different cultures there put in the village. One cool thing about that scene that I like to point out is Hawkeye sees that they're there. The girls and Duncan are captured and standing before the sachem and the council. And Hawkeye comes in, and he just comes walking in. And what's he holding in his hand, Caleb, when he's he walks holding, in? He's holding a wampum belt Oh yeah, that shows who he's from, who his people are. So for those of you that don't know what wampum is, it a lot of people think it's Indian money. No. Wampum is shelled beads taken from Quahog down in the Chesapeake Bay, and then it's filed down and made in these little purple-white beads. And the patterns were shown to be what tribe or nation or clan you were from and who you were representing. And so whenever you showed up somewhere, you always showed your wampum. It was like your passport. It was your driver's license. It showed your credentials. And so he understands that if he just shows up as this white guy, well, who's this spy here? But he's holding a wampum belt, and he says, I'm here to conduct official diplomacy. Now... At the same time, he's being molested as he comes in. People are trying to beat him with war clubs. One guy actually slashes his chest open a little bit. That was probably from warriors that had seen him on the path and they were fighting him. In reality, if he's doing that, you're not supposed to touch him. So that's actually showing that these warriors are actually dishonoring him and probably why the sachem talks them down once he shows up there. But again, it shows his resolve because he stands back up each time and keeps walking. And so that's telling the warriors that he is a brave and that he deserves respect. And so they calm down once they see that they put him through this gauntlet. One question I had, this scene for being pretty short, it's probably only maybe 10 minutes-ish in the whole movie, but there's a lot to dissect in it. That Huron village, would there have been a Huron village? That was a fully developed village. There was a lot of houses, a lot of women, children, Men, would there have been one in New York so close to, I mean, that's pretty southern New York. I mean, it's northern, but it's the southern end of northern New York. Where this scene comes from is the book. And in the book, Magua kidnaps the daughters and for weeks they are tracking them back to Canada, at which point they get to the Huron Village. And there's actually a Delaware and a Huron Village and they actually split up and go and talk to the Sachems. So I think that when they made the movie, they didn't appreciate that, hey, this will look like they're, you know, two miles away mm -hmm. and they just ran after them. When in reality, in the book, you know, they went all the way across Lake Ontario is where this took place. Also in that scene, like you said, the Sachem speaks Huron and French. Daniel Day Lewis Hawkeye speaks English and Mohican. The Major Duncan speaks French and English, obviously. So nobody really speaks the same language yeah. <laughs> there. And Major Duncan has to do the translating to iron out this deal. And the uh, end of the line deal is that Hawkeye wants to give himself up to the tribe because Magua needs some sort of human 
punishment, I guess, to like fulfill his honor. What was the honor code amongst Braves like that? Because it seemed very complicated. Even in the movie, it was kind of hard to get what Magua wanted out of that. I can break it back down to what we've already talked about with adoption. There were two kinds of adoption in the culture. One, which we mentioned, where you could take somebody that was captive and assimilate them into your culture and they could be the replacement. And the second was you could get your revenge through adoption. Ritual torture, basically. Torturing someone so that they feel pain uh, would relieve your pain. So once somebody else suffered, all of a sudden, okay, I can put this behind me. And the, the sachem even says that at, at one point. He says, okay, you can take the dark-haired daughter back, uh, but the other one, uh, Magua, will take to heal his heart, I think is the way he puts yeah. it. So he, he gets, you know, one of them will be tortured and burned, and one Magua will get to adopt. And you know, he put his wife. In the book, he really did want her to be his wife. But yes. He wanted to basically make her subservient to him. Mm -hmm. But in that culture, that's not really how it would have worked out. She would have been adopted as a daughter, more likely, or a sister, not as a wife, because it's a matrilineal society, and so you couldn't force a woman, even a white woman, to marry you. It just wasn't part of, it's not part of their culture. Yeah, it seemed like they were probably taking something that was stretched out and condensing it, because Magua, doesn't he, it kind of alludes to it that he wants to be brought into that Sachem's tribe, and so that Sachem was kind of um, arbitrating a deal that maybe he didn't necessarily have anything to say in it, but they're all agreeing to have him arbitrate it. Is that have any? Is that how it would have worked? Who actually would have figured out like who got to do? You know, who got to have revenge? Who got to get married? Or and this would not happen in a five-minute conversation. Yeah. This would take place over days. But it, it probably would have worked out to some kind of compromise in the end because usually what we say is, you know, diplomacy is everyone agreeing to everything that everyone doesn't want to have mm -hmm. happen. And when you look at what happened, nobody was happy. Magua wasn't happy. The girls weren't happy. Hayward wasn't happy. And uh, Hawkeye isn't happy. And so they're all going through their own ways to try and uh, remedy the situation that the sachem has decreed. The British major who is doing the translating, he decides that he's going to put himself up for the ritual revenge so that Hawkeye can escape. That substitution, that was completely, that was okay the way in their culture that one person could substitute and that actually would have made everything cool for the lack of a better word. At one point, Hawkeye says, I am the son of this Mohican my, and... Uh, he was known as the Long Rifle. A lot of the Huron hated him. He was this great enemy of theirs. So he claimed my death would be a great honor to you. So one death would not necessarily be as good as another death. But I think the way that they looked at it was, hey, this is a British major. So I think they looked at it like it's a comparable trade and it would help the healing process. Plus, Hayward mistranslated everything. So he didn't even yeah. give the whole impression that Hawkeye was the better choice. He gave the impression that he was the better choice. I did enjoy that part of the scene because they did, for some reason, kind of make Duncan Hayward into kind of a jerk. And I appreciated how they kind of said, okay, he does have some honor. He's willing to sacrifice himself so that the girls will have a better chance to escape. I think it implied that he realized Hawkeye is the only one that could have a chance to saving them because he's a forest guy and he can go and track them down and save her. And he knows that he can't do that. So I, I enjoyed how they put that in there. 
And it's also interesting to think that as Hawkeye is leaving, he gets out his musket ball. And it's probably, I'd say, the second most dramatic scene in the movie where he turns back and he fires his rifle and it shoots Hayward in the skull, killing him before he can be totally tortured to death. That's what I was wondering about that scene is that that torture is ritualized. Does They're roasting him off and, you know, they're not killing him quickly did Hawkeye steal some of the honor that they were trying to get out of it? Realistically, the pain that somebody suffers is part of the ceremony. And uh, a lot of people noted, early colonists noted how if they captured somebody from another village, they would stand there and make no noise as they were being tortured to death. And that showed that they, you know, he had good honor. He didn't squeal at all when we tortured him. And this torture wasn't, you know, Hayward, they had the fire already going in that scene. But honestly, it would have been a lot slower. They would have started out cutting him or taking little sticks with th- that had been poked in the fire and poking him, and they would have drawn it out. This, it just shows them hoisting him up, and I, I don't want to be burned no, in no, 10 no. minutes or 5 minutes yeah. or 1 hour. Either way, I'd say, yes, please put a, a bullet between my ears. Please do that. Realistically, they would have been mad if uh, somebody shot their, their torture guy uh, in the head. But if he was... 300 yards away throughout all the commotion it's possible they wouldn't have even noticed it yeah the next scene is there's a big another big chase scene through the uh, mountain ridge and um this is the final scene this is where it all comes down you didn't like that scene at all is what you were telling us this scene steve is every time i watch it if if i was just to take this 10 minute scene and put it together it just gets my gut every time (laughs) They're chasing, it's Chinga, Chukuk, Uncas, and Hawkeye chasing Magua and his scouts trying to recapture the one sister. And the one thing that hits me immediately is the scenery and the music. right the scenery is just these beautiful mountains surrounded by a skirt of forest and as they're chasing the Huron scouts they're climbing the mountain and as they continue to climb the mountain the music continues to climb in volume and speed until the battle commences when Uncas and Chingachagook and Hawkeye show up to rescue Alice the younger daughter and a great fight scene breaks out the problem was Uncas got there first. And because it kind of implies that he has this uh, love relationship with the younger daughter, so he outran the two older people in his group because he's the younger warrior, and he gets there, and he's able to defeat three braves in a row before he gets to Magua. And at which point you have this really great equal battle where there's two warriors both in their prime on the edge of a cliff. And it's looking like Uncas is going to be successful and until Magua manages to get a, a stab wound right into him, right into his chest. And Uncas kind of just stands there as he's looking into the eyes of the girl that he's trying to save. And he goes to his knees. And it's just a really powerful scene. And Magua just looks at him with disgust and kicks him over the cliff. All while Alice is watching this. Once Uncas falls, Alice walks to the edge of the cliff, and Magua 
goes to grab her hand because it implies that he wanted her to be his wife. And she just stands there like a statue with like a single tear falling from her eye. And she looks down the cliff where her love, Uncas, fell and looks back at Magua and then just jumps off the cliff. Meanwhile, Hawkeye and Uncas's father have just gotten into sight of this. So he gets to see his son fall from the cliff as they're just 100 yards away. And you just hear him shout out, Uncas! And but even now as we're recording this, I just feel my hair standing on end because it's such a powerful yeah. scene watching your brother or your son die. And in the book, it was even more powerful because um, in this, at the end of the movie, Uncas's father, in the end, he says how he's the last of the Mohicans. In the book, he's always bragging on everyone about his son, his son Uncas, who is this great warrior. And he always says, Uncas will be the last of the Mohicans. And now he's just lost his son, his pride and joy, and he has to see him fall. The future of his people. Exactly. The scene of finally, finally Uncas's dad gets there, and I almost felt that Magua gave up when he knew that um, Chingachuk, he comes there and he just wrecks Magua. He does, and I got the feeling that Magua just gave up at that point. Like he knew he wasn't winning that one. And Uncas's father, he has this great weapon. It almost looks like a rifle. Yeah. And uh, it was called a rifle club. And they called it that because it looked like a rifle stock, but it would have a spike in it. And he comes and he starts fighting with Magua. And he breaks one of Magua's arms, and at which point Magua tries to use his other arm to stab him, and then he breaks one mm-hmm. of his legs. And Magua falls to his feet, and just like how Magua dispensed with Uncas, his father just gives him a quick blow to the skull, and it's all over. Basically, after Magua gets killed, then it's the movie's all done, and it's final curtain call. Yeah, except we've got one more powerful scene to come here if, if your heartstrings haven't been tugged on enough. You've got Chingachagook and Korra and Hawkeye standing there. And Chingachagook is just in utter mourning. Like we said, not only has his son died, but now he sees himself as the last of the Mohicans. And he says that one day all this land will be taken over and gobbled up and gone. And the Red Man will be no more. They'll be totally killed off and die out. And he says that... uh... The future of this place is for my white son, and he looks at Hawkeye. But then he looks over and he says, but someday will be no place for anybody, even the white man. And Hawkeye says, it's just your grieving heart talking, and he says, it's true. New people will come into this land, and they will find jobs and employment and live and die. But once, but once, we were here. And then you just hear music.
it really was a great ending and i i mean they set up they prophesied from the from hindsight but things changed pretty quickly along the hudson river what happened in those next years after the french and indian war wrapped up once the the french were finally defeated and they lost all their hold on north america it basically created a fast track for british settlement because on top of the french being gone now any native americans that allied with the french you could automatically just ignore any treaties from before with them you can say okay you fought with the french your land's now forfeit now english and it also really started to affect even the allied indian nations that were joined with the english because for generations they've been having this kind of cat and mouth relationship with the french and the english and the french and the english are competing by trying to give them best terms best trade goods on who they're going to help but now that the french are gone all they have to choose from is the english and we're going to see the deals get worse and worse and worse for all the native americans in the northeast and colonies are just going to start coming over in boatloads and expanding and if you want to learn more you can obviously listen to our show because we've just finished the french and indian war but soon we're going to be talking about pontiac and gaiasunta's rebellion and then we'll be getting into the american revolution and then we'll be covering even more so it's it's a gradual process but caleb's right this is the turning point that just lets the wagon start rolling across the frontier you basically have to tune into Iroquois history and legend to hear the rest of the story because like they said like you guys said it's just going to keep going on and on and there's a lot more to hear. So this movie really gave us just a little taste of what's coming and there's just so much history and culture to explore after this. But it's important to note that like we said earlier the Mohicans or the Machicans are not gone. The Six Nations are not gone. They're still here in New York. Now, do they have all their land that their ancestors have? No. Have they been oppressed by the government and other less than scrupulous people? Yes. But they're still here. And their culture is still here. And their way of life has been severely hampered. But they are still, God willing, going to be here for the rest of time, we would hope. And thank you so much for joining us today in this throughway collaboration. It went surprisingly well. I'm shocked how well this went. Yeah, we've been itching to do this with Steve for a while, and we really appreciate you, Steve, because when Andrew and I just were getting into podcasts, you were one of the people that uh, was very supportive, and we'd been talking back and forth from emails, and Steve has been doing podcasts for a while. He has a, a very good in-depth podcast called the history of the papacy 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 it's the same thing (laughs) we got into an argument on this on another episode too and then why don't you tell us about your new show that we're actually doing here as a collaboration well as we said it's beyond the big screen and what i really hope to get out of the show is that we look at the backstory and what more than just what really happened because I think you could see from the show, we weren't just nitpicking. Hawkeye would have had four buttons on his shirt (laughs) instead of seven. I think we were really trying to dig into, give give everybody a more richer story. And when I do these interviews, especially this one, I learned so much more about the movie. And I think that the movie really makes a lot more sense. And it's just a much more enjoyable experience when, when you can learn a little bit more about the backstory. So did you like the movie? 
Oh, I mean, how could you not like the movie? And I think this movie would have come out probably when I was in middle school or high school. So I think it's like the, one of those movies that when you see when you're young and it just sticks with you for the rest of your life. I keep hoping that they'll make like a high budget miniseries on this whole part of the French and Indian War because I think people would gobble it up. I saw this movie years ago, and I've always liked it, even before I knew anything about the French and Indian War. I don't even think, even when I saw this movie when it first came out, that I understood that this was the French and Indian War. But now, doing all the research we've done for our show, everything just fits into place, and you can really see what's going on, the drama of the stage. Yeah, that's what I think a lot of movies like this would be so much better served instead of the... The decisions that they have to make to fit something into the two hour, two and a half hour time frame, if they could stretch it out a little bit, you know, they could really make a more full narrative. I think like with um, the miniseries or not the regular series turn on AMC, yeah, they have to add in like the, a lot of the romance and things like that that probably didn't really happen, but they can also develop a lot of things better and just make it a more interesting story. And I think, like you said, something like the French and Indian War, if they stretch that out, you could fit in a lot of these sub-stories that would that would just be really interesting. And I think people would learn a lot from them. Totally agree. So I think that everybody should definitely tune in to both of Steve's shows, History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen. And Iroquois History and Legends. Thank you so much for being with us, everybody. Uh, if you feel up to it, why don't you get on iTunes, and if you haven't already, leave a review for all three of our shows. Yeah, all the re- <laughs> let's leave lots of reviews. <laughs> any review on Iroquois History and Legends will make you an honorary Wild Sweet Potato member. And any review for Steve's shows will earn his... Uh, you do indulgences, right? Yeah, we'll, you'll we'll, get many indulgences. And if you email me that you've left a message to the History of the Papacy, you will receive a special bonus episode. Ooh. Well, maybe I should do that then. Watch the special episode be the, the Pope-mobile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's the finest episode on History of the Papacy. <laughs> if any of you are wondering if this voice sounds familiar, that's because Steve and ourselves actually traded plugs for our April Fool's episode. So if you're thinking to yourselves, I know these voices. Where have I heard them before? Yes, we're the Pope-mobile guys. And Steve is Steve. So thank you very much, everybody. We hope you have a great week, and we'll be seeing you soon.